0: Lord, I pray that you would open up the words of this book to us today, that we would understand uh, why you were speaking to the audience you spoke to through this prophet, and how it applies to us today, and may we respond accordingly. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for all that you will do in the future, and I ask your blessing on this lesson and on our time here in Sunday school and later as we worship you. You know, I ask these things in your son Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'll invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to this prophet, the book of Micah, just so you have it available. It is situated about 70% into your Bible, a little more than two-thirds of the way back there. It's uh, right after Jonah, right before Nahum. It's the 33rd of 39 books in the Old Testament. It's one of the 12 small books. At the end of the Old Testament, we refer to as the minor prophets. And again, I think we've said this before. We call them minor prophets and major prophets not because of their significance or contribution, but because of word count. If you look at the book of Micah, it's, I think it's 2,118 words. It's only seven short chapters. But it is a memorable book. And there are some quotes from the book I think you'll recognize. I'll just mention a few of them here up front. For example, there's this amazing messianic passage that Micah gives uh, from Micah chapter 5 he says but you O Bethlehem Ephrathah who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel who is coming forth is from of old from ancient days does that sound familiar? you've probably heard this one at every Christmas service you've ever been to probably then there's this one from chapter 4 and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And those of you who grew up in an, uh, what they call an Anabaptist church, like I did, I grew up in the Church of the Brethren, or maybe if you were a Mennonite or an Old Order German Baptist, or maybe a Dunkard Brethren, this verse I just quoted is uh, one of the main proof texts that we always taught for the doctrine of pacifism. That was a key verse for us. Then there's this one from uh, chapter 6, verse 8. This one is one that's gotten really popular with the social justice movement. This is from the book of Micah. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? I'll ask the guys up in the booth if you could advance the slides a little bit. When you, Yeah, um, okay, hold on there. Thank you. These are all memorable passages I just spoke of, but sometimes a couple of them are used a little bit out of context. So when we read them in their original setting, which we're going to do today, within the context of what the author meant for it in its totality, they can take on a little bit of a different uh, meaning and significance. So what I'd like to do this morning as we survey this text to provide that appropriate context, and we can hopefully understand what Micah was saying at that time, and to whom, very importantly, and why. So as we do, we're going to survey the major themes and visions in this message, and as we do so, hopefully we'll see what God was communicating, again, to that audience at that time, so that we can understand how Micah's message still applies to us some 2,700 years later. So what is God communicating through Micah? What are the major themes? You might think, you know, these 12 minor prophets at the end of the Bible, man, they all kind of seem to blend in together, you know? How's one differentiated from the other? Hopefully, by the end of today's overview, we will have at least a basic idea of what God inspired Micah to say and why. And you can see here's our outline. As per usual, we're going to talk about the authorship and the dating of Micah. I'm going to spend a little time talking about his intended audience because I think that's confused some people. And we'll look at the basic themes, three major themes from this book, and then I'll give some concluding thoughts. Let's dive right in. If you'll move the slide, we're going to talk about the authorship and date of Micah. And you'll be shocked to know that the author of the book of Micah was Micah. You're right. And if you've got your Bibles open, we know this by reading the very first verse. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Judah. Now, this name Micah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, his name meant, who is like Jehovah? In other words, who is like God? And it's a fitting name, as you'll see when we get to the end, the very closing verses. He asks that very question, who is like God? So, obviously, Micah was from, next slide, the village of Morasheth, which is today known as Morasheth Gath, You can see here on the map, it's about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem, down in a section of low hills, which the Hebrews called the Shephelah. Next slide. This was a 1,000-foot-high plain from which you could look up to the mountains where Jerusalem sat, and you could look down to the lower plains where the Philistines lived. So Micah, you could say he wasn't a big city guy, kind of like his contemporary Isaiah. Isaiah was prophesying at the same time but Isaiah was in the big city of Jerusalem, and he was a pretty important, what they called kind of a court official. He was important enough to carry his own seal, and he had, it seemed like, unfettered access to King Hezekiah. Micah, his contemporary, wasn't like that. Micah, you could say, was a small-town guy. He was from this backwater town called Moresheth, Marasheth. and as you read through his writings, you can kind of tell he really had a heart for the common people the everyday citizens that weren't big city people. His message was directed at those who were in the centers of wealth and power, as we'll see in a minute, those who took advantage of the powerless and of the less fortunate. He spoke to those who were in positions of power and of leadership who exploited the everyday citizens for personal gain. Sounds like now, now, doesn't it, Pat? Yes, (laughs) I was going to say that. So... We know that Micah was from the southern kingdom based on where he lived. As you can see, Moresheth was in the southern kingdom. And by the fact that he specifically names three kings that ruled over Judah in the southern kingdom. And by naming these kings that ruled during his lifetime, he gives us an approximate time stamp. If you could move to the next slide. Um, king Jothan, the first king that he names, took his reign about 751 B.C. Then his son Ahaz ruled until about 715 B.C., and then his son, Hezekiah, ruled until about 686 B.C. So we have a general framework of somewhere in there that Micah prophesied and ministered uh, during the time of these three kings. But if you look at the events that he's talking about and the promises of punishment God's going to make and what actually happened near the end of his ministry, we can hone it down a little bit and say pretty confidently that it was probably more about somewhere between 735 and 722 B.C. because in 722, that's when God poured out his wrath on the northern kingdom of Israel. We've been through this history. The great dispersion, as they call it, where the northern kingdom of Israel was scattered among the nations. So we think that it was right in that time frame. In other words, it was about seven centuries before Christ the Messiah came, and that'll be important. So that's a little bit more about Micah, uh, about the date of this book, and uh, when he wrote. Now let's move to... The target audience. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this because I want you to understand that a lot of the commentators that you'll read say he was just speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah. And I read through these and then I read through the Bible and I want you to understand something. I mean, I'm going to go through this and show you who he's speaking to because it's kind of important. And the point here is that a lot of times people with PhDs who write books and commentaries, even if they're in consensus, Consensus never determines the truth. I'd rather stick with what the Bible says. And so we're going to go through this, and you can decide for yourself who he's speaking to. But I want you to um, look at, um, we're in chapter 1 of Micah, hopefully, look at verse 5. Micah 1, chapter 5. What does he say is the reason for all this prophecy he's about to give? He says all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. So we have to ask, who is Jacob? That would most likely be the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And he includes the house of Israel in this mention also, which is the 10 tribes to the north. So by naming Jacob and the house of Israel, he's specifically including both the northern and the southern kingdom as his audience. Now look back up at verse 1. Who does he say this word from the Lord is intended for? He names two cities there, Samaria and Jerusalem. If you go to the next slide, you'll see Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Obviously, Jerusalem was in the south. So this is something that uh, Hosea the prophet did sometimes. He called the northern kingdom of Israel Samaria. It's kind of like when a foreigner talks about what's going on over there in Washington, D.C. They're really referring to America. It's kind of a synonym. So he's talking to Samaria in the north and Jerusalem in the south. Two more verses. Let's look at chapter 2 and go to verse 12. Who is God speaking to here? Once again, he's speaking through the prophet to Jacob and to Israel. Notice that Judah isn't mentioned by name. Again, the commentators, most of them, not all, they'll tell you that Micah was just speaking to Judah, but they're not mentioned by name here. They're certainly included but they're not singled out. This message seems to be for a broader audience than just the southern kingdom of Judah. Go to chapter 3, verse 1. Micah's going to say, hey, listen up, everybody. Who's he addressing there? Yes, he's addressing the heads of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel. Now look down in verses 8 and 9 in chapter 3. Whose sin is being declared here? It's Jacob's transgression and Israel's sin. Again, he speaks directly to the house of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel. So it's obvious to me from this verse alone that his message isn't just for Judah. He's addressing, it seems to me, both the northern and the southern kingdoms. Now, one more. Go to chapter 5. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. Who is this prophecy intended for? to the remnant of Jacob, right? Not just the remnant of Judah, although their descendants, again, they would be considered to be a remnant of Jacob, but God seems to be speaking to a broader audience. He's speaking to a remnant of Jacob, which is another name for Israel, right? So Micah seems to be saying this is concerning both capital cities, Samaria and Jerusalem, and that his message is for both Jacob and Israel, meaning all 12 tribes, not just Judah. Yes, he is in Judah. We've established that he was from there. He names three southern kings. And in chapter one, he names a whole handful of little cities throughout Judah. But he is still concerned with Israel because God obviously is still concerned with Israel. And they're all descended from Jacob, they're all from the same family. So that, it appears, is Micah's target audience. And you can argue with me, but. Um, We went through the text, so hopefully that's helpful, and I think that's important. Now let's move to our next point, uh, part three of the lesson. We're going to look at the basic themes from Micah, and we'll start with the first prominent theme, which is a message of punishment, which resonates through the first three chapters of Micah and also in chapter six, which is to say that out of these seven chapters of this short book, four of them are dedicated to indictment, against the rulers of Israel and Judah, and all those who follow their lead, including false prophets and priests. So like any good prophet who speaks on behalf of the Lord, Micah is serving as a watchman on the wall, warning God's people of impending punishment for their sins. Does that sound familiar? We've only been through four of the minor prophets, I think, but we should be beginning to see a pattern here. It's a common theme. God sends the prophets to warn the people of the dire consequences of sin, to give them a chance to do what? Repent, yeah. And he does this not only for his people, Israel, but if you were here for Al Negan's lesson last week on Jonah, he also sends them to other cities like Nineveh. And Nineveh repented, didn't they? Amazing. So now let's look at some of the charges that God brings against his people, Judah and Israel. Hopefully we'll get a better understanding of the words that God is giving Micah to deliver. Let's go back to chapter 1. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Again, you'll see here that Micah is referring to Samaria up in the northern kingdom of Israel. And in three times in these two verses, 6 and 7, he refers to Israel as her. He refers to her carved images and to her idols. And he mentions The fee of a prostitute by which she gained all of these idols. It sounds a lot like um, his contemporary, his other contemporary, Hosea, who was speaking to Israel, calling them whores, harlots, and prostitutes up in the north. So Micah is condemning them for their harlotry with other gods here. That's in chapter 1. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. This is kind of interesting to me. I've been thinking about this verse 1. He uh, accuses his audience of conspiracy. He says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil in their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hands. It sounds to me like Micah is a bit of a conspiracy um, theorist. But this shouldn't surprise us because after all, a few weeks ago when J.D. taught that sermon on uh, Matthew 28, um, we learned that it's nothing new That evil people get together and make evil plans behind closed doors, and they execute those plans simply because they have the power to do so. And Micah is calling out here in chapter 2 their evil schemes that they conspire to do to the people. Flip to chapter 3, again verse 1. Here again he addresses the heads of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel, telling them, he says, "You, you hate what's good, and you seem to love evil. Then go down further in chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, Micah declares this, and he's talking about the false prophets. He's going to call out the false prophets. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, saying, peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouth. In other words, he's condemning these false prophets that when people give gift offerings to the prophets, they speak kind words to them. But If you don't give offerings and gifts to these false prophets, well then, they're enemies of the prophet. He goes on in verse 6, Therefore it shall be night to you, he's talking to the false prophets, without vision and darkness to you, without divination. The sun shall go down on these false prophets, and the day shall be black over them, the seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. So Micah calls out the false prophets who are leading God's people astray. The indictments and warnings of punishment continue in chapter 6. If you want to go there, it's 16 verses. And I'm going to break it down. I'll give a little synopsis of the first eight verses within which we see verse 8, which I said the social justice movement likes to use a lot, maybe a little out of context. And then I'll give a synopsis of the last eight verses. So chapter 6, the first eight verses, the Lord basically says through Micah, Hey, argue with me if you want, but the truth is that you haven't obeyed me, you have not worshiped me alone, you've forgotten everything I've done to preserve and sustain you, and you still don't understand that what I require of you is that you act justly in accord with my laws, that you love in kindness, and that you walk humbly with me, the Lord your God. And I want to take just a minute here because it is an important text that we find in Micah, and like I said a lot of the people in the social justice movement talk about that in an effort to redefine what justice really is. Last week I heard a wonderful interview by Dr. Vodi Bacham and he said this. He said, "Yeah, justice is important, but only to the degree that justice must be defined as the type of justice that God demands, which is according to his precepts applied equally to all people, whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're a preacher or a layperson, whether you're a ruler or just a common citizen, whether you're black or white or a shade of brown in between, whether you're a male or a female or a Jew or a Gentile. God demands that justice, true justice, as defined by Scripture, is according to His law being held consistently and without prejudice. We should all know this. And to that end, Dr. Bauckham said, we have to be right about what the word justice means and about what God requires of his people at any time in history. So I hope that puts that little verse into proper context. I couldn't ignore that. And then moving to the last eight verses of chapter 6, here God asks a really good rhetorical question. Would I be just if I didn't punish all iniquity? And he says through Micah, you're rich men, are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow. This is a very serious warning and indictment. He's telling them what he's going to do. I will strike you with a grievous blow because instead of keeping my statutes, you followed the ways of two of the most evil kings in the history of Israel. And he names two of them, Omri and his son Ahab. And he says, so I will punish you. So chapter 6, again, is just like the first three Chapters In that, it delivers this warning of impending punishment. God is not messing around. You go to the next slide. I, I wanted to do this. You can gain some really good insights into what was going on with these rulers in Judah and also um, the rulers in Israel by going to Second Kings and Second Chronicles. It's fascinating reading what the scriptures have to say about these uh, men in the executive branch, if you will, Um, I have about two and a half pages of notes I was going to include in this sermon because it really helps you understand why God was so angry with them. Um, If you want, I've got them printed off. It's two and a half pages. It's fascinating to read what these accounts say about these men that were in power positions during Micah's ministry. And so I've got that for you if you'd like that. Okay, let's go to the exciting part of Micah as we move to the next point in our outline. A message of promise. This is found in a little bit of chapter 2. We'll talk about two verses from chapter 2, and then also in chapters 4 and 5. And I I wanted to, I thought, man, this is such a short book. I could read all of chapters 4 and 5. We don't have time. But um, in the middle of chapters 1 through 3, where God is giving this indictment and warning of this coming judgment, it's a a vast sea of indictment. There's this little island of chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where this message of promise comes out. So I had to pull this out. Micah says, and he's speaking of the future. God, in the midst of all this indictment and and judgment, he's speaking of a future day. He says, I will surely assemble you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them, They break through and pass the gate, going out by it, and their king passes on before them the Lord at their head. Isn't that fun to think about? What an incredible, joyous, noisy, excited people following Christ into a new kingdom. I love this little, like I said, it's a little island in chapter 2 there. So you can think about it this way. It's like a father who disciplines a child he loves, right in the middle of reprimanding them and scolding them, God can't help but telling them that someday he is going to regather them and be their king. I love that. Now let's turn to chapter 4. And I am going to read verses 1 through 7 because this is really exciting. And uh, my brother Chris Bazell was reading uh, Thessalonians, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians a couple weeks ago, and he texted me and he said, Scott, Paul's saying we've got to remind each other of these things in the future as encouragement. Share these words with each other. And I find this... Chapter 4 and 5, this is the same thing. Listen to this. This is really cool. Micah is prophesying about the future kingdom that will be ruled by the Lord. He says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be, shall be established as the highest of the mountains. He's talking about Jerusalem. And it shall be lifted up above the hills. Now, that's interesting. I think this will literally happen. This is what the Bible says after the flood. God raised up all the mountains and plateaus. The water um, drained off. Right here it says he's going to lift Jerusalem and that mountain up as the highest. So I think it will be like that. And many peoples will flow to it and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the lord from jerusalem he shall judge between many peoples he shall judge for many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore that's really interesting this this amazing passage was obviously very important if you want to go to the next slide andrew Because I could have just read to you word for word from Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. They're identical. So did, did Micah steal this from Isaiah? Or maybe did Isaiah steal it from Micah? Or was it possibly important enough to God to give this important message, Pat's nodding her head, yes, to these people at the same time through two different prophets? We don't know, but obviously this is a very important message of promise. Okay, continuing, you can go to the, there we go. Uh, Verse 4 continues on, "'But they shall sit, every man under his vine "'and under his fig tree, "'and no one shall make them afraid, "'for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken "'for all the people's walk, "'each in the name of its God. "'But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God "'forever and ever. "'In that day,' declares the Lord, "'I will assemble the lame "'and gather those who have been driven away.'" And those whom I have afflicted, and the lame, I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off into a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. He's describing the millennial kingdom if you read Revelation 20. Now, I know there might be some uh, amillennialists listening. An amillennialist doesn't believe in a literal thousand year kingdom. They'll probably say, no, Scott, this is describing the future, but he's describing here the eternal state of heaven. Well, I would beg to differ. Let me tell you why. If you look at verse 3 there, and there's what my ESV Bible says, he shall judge between many peoples, and he shall decide for strong nations far away. But the original Hebrew text says, he will judge and rebuke many people. Isn't that interesting? The prophet Isaiah in his text says, He shall decide disputes for strong nations. Now let me ask you a question. Will there be disputes in heaven? Will people be arguing with each other? Will there be the need for God to rebuke people? That would indicate they were sinning. Is there sin in heaven? I don't think so. I'm pretty sure this cannot be describing the eternal state. This is a promise of a future kingdom on earth inhabited by many nations ruled by Christ. Again, An incredible message of promise. And I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I can't wait to be a part of that kingdom. Because even if it's not heaven, it's going to be a thousand times better than any earthly government ruling any country right now on earth, right? Okay, let's move to um, number uh, three again, the message of praise. This is how the book concludes. Micah gives a message of praise for the God of salvation. But chapter 7 begins with Micah's personal lament over their personal sin. If you look at that, you can see he was obviously very distressed over the complete lack of righteousness as he looked out on uh, the people. He knew also, this was also distressing, he knew that God was serious about these warnings and that punishment was coming. He knew it was coming to Samaria and to Israel in the north. And he also knew that Judah and Jerusalem would follow soon thereafter. So this is a very sad time for him. So let's look down at verse 7 of chapter 7. Here we see the words of a man. I can just imagine as he's saying these words, he probably felt like the lone, solitary, faithful believer that's just clinging to faith despite all the evil that he sees around him. Micah says in verse 7, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And he keeps talking about this future day when God will execute judgment on the nations. And he says, In that day, they shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. He's speaking to Israel here. And they shall be in fear of you. And I always used to think when he said they'll be in fear of you that he obviously was addressing God, but he he spoke about God in the third person here. They'll turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. He is speaking to the house of Jacob, telling them that on that day, the nations will be in fear of them because of their God. He says, they shall be in fear of you. Very interesting. And then he closes with this prayer, if you want to look down at verses 18 through 20. And remember I said that Micah's name means, who is like Jehovah? That's what the question is that he ends up here asking. Who is a God like you? He's praying to God, this message of praise. Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. And then, it seems he turns again once and he addresses Jacob saying, Hey guys, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. And then again, he speaks to the Lord, saying, You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So, incredible ending. Let's move to part four. Here's some concluding thoughts. What, what can we say about the book of Micah? I'll say this, believe it or not, as harsh as the indictments and judgments were against all the leaders, against the priests, the false prophets in both Samaria and Jerusalem, God still loved his people Israel, didn't he? And we've seen that in the other prophets. As Micah said in his final words, God is merciful, he's compassionate, he's loving, and he's faithful. And he's never going to go back We've, we've reiterated this time and time again. He's never going to go back on his promises that he made to Abraham. It's hard to escape that truth. So we conclude this. God gives warnings to the people that he loves so that they don't have to suffer his wrath. We have the privilege today of hearing these words that God gave the prophet Micah so that we can see how serious God is about worshiping him and how serious he is that we be set apart and holy and separate from the world. We can also conclude that for those who fail to repent of their disobedience, even for those who may know who he is but yet fail to fear him, fail to love him, fail to walk in obedience with him, there is certain judgment coming and there will be horrific eternal consequences for those who fail to repent. But for those who know and follow the Lord He will discipline us, right? Not out of hate, but from fatherly love. He does discipline us. I've been the recipient of his discipline many times. Praise God for that. God knows that sin destroys. And again, he wants us to be holy. He wants us to be set apart so that we can receive his eternal blessings. So here in the closing verses again, Micah reminds us that God pardons iniquity and passes over transgression. He doesn't retain his anger forever. Because he delights, again, in steadfast love. And even though, I want to make this point, even though we may not be blood descendants of Jacob, I don't know, maybe somebody is, we don't know, um, that's who these promises were made to, right? To Jacob. The Lord promises that both in the Old, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? So as we read through these things, and he said, well, he was talking to Israel. Hold on a second. It doesn't matter if you're necessarily a blood descendant with the DNA of Jacob. Jesus said in Matthew 3, 9, if God wanted to, he could raise up descendants of Abraham from stones. So obviously the point is, it is not your lineage, it's not your bloodline that makes you one of God's elect. It's through faith alone, by grace alone, right? Go read Ephesians chapter 2. Paul talks about those of you Gentiles who were alienated not part of the citizenry of the commonwealth of Israel, but you were adopted into that citizenry as one body through the blood of Christ. And then Romans 11, he talks about the Gentiles being grafted in and nourished by the original root as one body. So we should get excited about these promises. This is not just stuff 27 years, 100 years old that God said, well, it'll be done and then it'll, you can just go back and look at these minor prophets every once in a while out of passing interest. No, no. These are promises for us too. And what a great encouragement for the faithful remnant like Micah who cling to faith, regardless of how evil the world becomes around us. And by the way, I want to ask again are you noticing a pattern in all these prophets? What we see here is that God is a God of justice and he's a God of righteousness. If you think about it, he sent all of his prophets declaring, repent and believe. Does that sound familiar? Sounds a little bit like the gospel, doesn't it? See, even back then, and I want to make this point. I want to go back to what Micah said. They knew about the coming Messiah. Micah told them 700 years before the first um, uh, coming of Jesus Christ, who would rule over Israel and all the nations. And I want to finish with the words that Micah spoke to Israel and to Judah these seven centuries before Christ came. Again, let's, let's go back to Micah 5, verses 2 through 5. to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. What an incredible promise, and I'm going to end my lesson there, because those are some good words to end with, and I want to invite you to come back and hear what Kerry Wilson teaches next week on our next minor prophet, Nahum. And after hearing Al's lesson on Jonah last week and after hearing my lesson today, you might be surprised to find who Nahum's audience is and what he has to say to them. So come back next week for that. And um, we're done for now, but I'll see you back here at 1030, and we will worship this awesome God.